I trust you all had a good week. Good. It's like you're all smiling, so that's a positive thing. If not, we'll be praying for you. You can let us know. We love to pray and see God work in, in the lives of our, our folks. Uh, you can continue to pray for Ambika's sister, Rita, who is uh, uh, dealing with these health issues, and Glenn, and, and also uh, her, her nephew, um, who will be going uh, uh, to India to take his exams so that he could open up his own practice. He's a medical doctor, and then he could do that. And so these are tough exams, and we want to be praying for him as well, that the Lord would just open his mind and help him to recall everything that he's learned. Um, Well, you can turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and uh, take out your swords. Remember the sword drills? Some of you may remember a sword drill. Um, We used to do them in Sunday school and in youth when I was a youth pastor, and you would shout out a verse, you'd have to hold your sword up high, and then you'd, the, the teacher would shout out a verse, you know, John 1, 1, and you, whoever was able to find it and read it first <laughs> won, the, won the drill. And so you would go through this various times, and I was always irritated by the kids who had everything memorized. You know, they didn't have to open their Bibles, which was a good thing, but they were kind of cheating a little bit. But anyway... Uh, Would it be to God that we would hide his word in our hearts as well? Well, this morning we're going to be looking at John chapter 1, and we're going to be getting into our text a little bit here in verses 1 to 5. And, um, you know, if you've known anything about the gospel of John over the years, you've always heard Christian leaders, Christian teachers, pastors, Sunday school teachers say, if you want to introduce an unbeliever to Christ, if that's your goal, give them the gospel of John. Give them the Gospel of John. Allow them to read the Gospel of John. And there's a reason for that. That's, you know, they don't turn to Matthew. They don't turn to Mark or Luke. They, say, they always say, give them the, the writings of the, the Apostle John. And the reason for that is 93% of John does not appear in any of the other Gospels. It's all original to him and to the Holy Spirit. The writer of John was the one who took care of Jesus' mother, by the way, until she died. Uh, Both of them, John and Jesus, had their burial place, uh, history tells us, in the city of Ephesus. They're still there today. We actually saw those when we went over there with David Hawking many years ago. Um, John probably knew Jesus better than anyone else of the apostles. Uh, John's favorite title for himself, he never calls himself by name, Uh, Even though the other Gospels mention him over and over again. He never calls himself by name in his own Gospel. But he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. (laughs) That's a pretty neat title if you ask me. Can you imagine that? Being the disciple whom Jesus loved. And we know a lot about John. Not even from the Bible. But from outside the Bible. One of the disciples of John was Polycarp. And if you know anything about church history, he was a man whose famous testimony of being burned at the stake in the city of Smyrna is recorded in in our history books. And Polycarp actually studied under the Apostle John. We also know that John was exiled to the island of Patmos. And some people say, well, this may be where where he wrote the book of Revelation, but it may even be where he wrote these, these writings as well and others. There's discrepancy on that. But there were probably... Uh, written during the reign of Domitian, and his reign was 81 A.D., and it lasted to about 96 A.D., at which time John was released 
from the island of Patmos. And history tells us that John went back to the city of Ephesus, a very, very old man. He was decrepit. And his last recorded words for us are actually the words not recorded in the Gospel of John, but in 1 John chapter 5, as he, law, he, read, he wrote his last verse, and history records that he had to be carried into the church because he couldn't walk. He couldn't walk anymore. And he mentions the last words in his epistle in verse 21 of 1 John 5. He says, little children, keep yourselves from what? Idols. Keep yourselves from idols. This was very important being from Ephesus. It was filled with idols. It was given to idol worship and sin. And it's interesting that history tells us that the Apostle John is one of the the only that died a natural death. He died of old age. The rest of the men were martyred. They were killed for their faith. But John died as an old man. During his exile, he wrote that book of Revelation, which we all love and read. And um, somewhere around 90, 95 A.D. is probably the date of this book, the Gospel of John. And the other Gospels, which is important to understand, when John wrote his, the other Gospels were probably already there. They were already written. And so um, in Matthew, you have the references of Christ being the king. It talks about the coming kingdom. We went through that gospel. And remember what Matthew was. He was what? A tax collector. He was a political official. And you see governmental language being used throughout the gospel of Matthew. And in Mark, um, Christ is depicted as what? A servant. Right? And um, he uses, interestingly enough, Mark uses the language that servants would use back in that day. And um, the favorite word... Throughout the Gospel of Mark, if you've ever read through that, you see it over and over again. And it's really the word of a servant, and it's the word immediately. Immediately, or straight away, immediately. Because why? The servant servant always had to respond quickly. And that word is throughout the whole Gospel of Mark. And he's writing just like a, you could say, a servant boy would write. And so you see that dynamic when you read through the Gospel of Mark. In Luke, we know him to be a doctor. He's a medical doctor. He would emphasize the humanity of Christ. And you're going to find a lot of details when it comes to the healings of people and the health of people that you don't find in any of the other Gospels. And you also find that the favorite name of Christ in Luke is what? Son of Man. Son of Man. It highlights his humanity. And the theme of Luke is the Son of Man, and it's there in Luke 19.10 where he, he says, the Son of Man came to what? To seek and to save that which is lost. That which is lost. And so we come to the Gospel of John. The theme here kind of is the Son of God. There are many titles of Jesus Christ, many descriptions of him uh, throughout the Gospel of John, but I'll just give you a couple where he references Jesus as the Son of God. In John 1.34, I think they're, I don't know if they're written there for you in your outline or not, but 1.34, and I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. He's referring to Christ. Or in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. Verse 17, for God did not send his Son Or verse 18 at the end, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Once again, John refers to Jesus as the Son of God. Even in in John 5, 18, there's a reference to uh, 
the Jews were upset and they were trying to kill Jesus in John 5.18 because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but it says that he was even calling his own, calling God his own father. <laughs> so back in the day, that would have been making yourself equal to God. And um, so he called himself the Son of God. In John 6.69, they say, And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. John 9, verses 35 and 38, uh, when he's, he's asking here, he says, they, they, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of God? He refers to himself that way. Or in John ten thirty six, 36, um, he says, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God. Jesus is quoting them when they said that he was blaspheming God, declaring himself to be the Son of God. Or in John 11, chapter, or verse 4 and verse 27, it says, when Jesus heard this, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God, he's referring to himself, may be glorified through it. And she said there in verse 27, yes, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And then even in the, the whole purpose of the, the book is written in John twenty thirty one, and we read this verse several times so far, but he says, the, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the what? The Son of God. And so listen, over and over and over again, the Greek word for child born of parents is technon in the original language. And guess what? It's never, ever, ever used of Jesus Christ in the Bible. That word is never used of Christ. Um, because Jesus isn't the little, the little born one of God. That's false doctrine. Um, that's not the way it's used in the Bible. The, the term son in the original Greek refers to an heir. An heir. Um, for example, you could swap a, a slave and make him a a son, a son of your own. You could adopt him. And that means that he would get your inheritance. So the term is heir. It's not child that is born. It's son. So Jesus was not born in the sense of a little child being begotten of God. The Lord Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, the Bible tells us, but he was God in what? In human flesh. Which is what the whole point of John is. John presents to us the deity of Jesus Christ. And guess who does not like this gospel? The cults. <laughs> no, they, they hate this gospel because it presents Christ as God in human flesh. They're very disturbed and they go into all kinds of unbelievable gymnastics to try to prove their points when they have to deal with verses from the Gospel of John. You have the Mormons who believe that Jesus was the brother of Satan. That's what they believe. They believe that Jesus was the brother of Satan. The Mormons do. That may surprise you. Well, guess what? He's not. <laughs> He's the Son of God. The Bible is very clear on that. You have people like the Jehovah Witnesses who say that he's Michael the Archangel. No, he's not. He's the Son of God. He's the Son of God. That's what the Bible says. Um, 
Well, I want to give you briefly just a a kind of a quick outline of this entire gospel, and it's pretty simple. And I think you could just jot it down there. It's not really in your in your outline there, but it's divided neatly into you could say three three parts. Three parts. Um, It has an introduction, epilogue, which we're going to be reading here today, and then a conclusion. But in between those two sections are three parts. And the introduction is in verses 1 to 18 in chapter 1. And we're going to deal with some of that this morning. The conclusion is basically chapter 21. So everything in between that is what I want to share with you in the outline. And basically from verse 19 of chapter 1 all the way to chapter 12, verse 50. 119 to 1250, just write down his public ministry. His public ministry. This is a rather lengthy section of scripture, but you're dealing here with the public ministry of Jesus Christ. He's out there with the people. You'll see at first that they they follow him during this time period. And then what happens? The tide turns, does it not? And they set out and set plans to kill him. That's the public ministry of Jesus Christ. 119 through 1250. And then you have from chapter 13 through 1726, chapter 13 all the way through chapter 17, verse 26, his private ministry. His private ministry. So you have his public ministry, and then you have his private ministry. And these are basically five chapters. You're going to find his, his private ministry with his disciple and, and spending time with them and encouraging them about the Holy Spirit, about prayer. Um, you'll find his high priestly prayer, what the, the disciples were kind of exposed to. And you see that all happening in his private ministry, chapter 13 through 1726. Or chapter 17. And then the, thirdly, the third outline I'd give you is, is not just his public ministry and his private ministry, but very simply his passion ministry. His passion ministry. And that is chapter 18 through 20, 31. So 18 to 20 basically is his passion ministry. And this deals with the suffering, the death, and, and different elements there. And so you have his public ministry, his private ministry, and his passion ministry. We call the last week of our Lord and Savior, the week before Easter, what do we call it? Passion Week, right? And it's, it's an introduction to that. Um, a couple other things that before we get into the text. If, if you've done any study at all in the Gospel of John, a couple things that are interesting to you. Um, some of you may not notice it immediately or you know, you're going to dig a little bit. But first of all, if you've ever taken a Greek class at all, and I took mine in Bible college and took two years of it and it was difficult. Uh, never made it to the Hebrew class, but I did the Greek. And uh, I remember the first book that we looked at was the Gospel of John. And um, I thought, wow, that's a big book for us. But there's a reason that you study the Gospel of John or any of John's writings for that, any of his epistles as well, when you first start learning um, Greek, and because the goal of those who believe in the Bible is to get you to translate the Bible as soon as you can. So you've got to learn the grammar, and, and one of the first things you do is they give you an exercise, and they give you the Gospel of John in Greek, and the goal is that you can be able to read it. And, uh, you know, why don't they give you another Gospel? Why do they use John? Because John is written in very, very simplistic Greek language. It's very simple. It's as if you were a Greek child and you would have no problem reading the Gospel of John. It's just very basic language. 
It's the simplest Greek imaginable, they say. It's very easy to translate. It's easy to follow. Whereas when you get to the Apostle Paul, on the other hand, wow, he just kind of blows, blows you out of the, the water with his Greek skills and his language because it's a lot more difficult. There's a lot more heavy-duty concepts in his teaching. But John is very simple. He uses a lot of illustrations. He loves contrast, light and darkness, right? Love and hate, life and death. This is John. And so he teaches us very simply. Um, Interestingly, Paul was not called the theologian of the new church, New Testament church. It wasn't Paul. It was John. (laughs) And and the reason was is people could just kind of comprehend what John was saying a lot easier than what Paul did. Uh, Even though his language is rather simplistic, his thoughts, as we're going to find out as we go through this gospel, were very profound. Very profound. And so I would ask you to stand in honor of God's word. We're just going to read the first five verses. And I would encourage you in your time during the week to start reading through the gospel of John. It'd be great if you can sit down and, and take an hour and read through the entire book. Uh, It's not that long. You could do that easily and just ask God to speak to you. But this morning, let's look at verses 1 through 5 of John 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Father, we ask you to bless these words to our heart as we look at just a couple of these verses. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We want to look at this first three sections here. And the first one is his relationship to God and all things. And we see this in verses 1 through 5. Christ's relationship to God in all things. Uh, there, There are five things here that are involved. We're only going to hit three of them today. But the first one is the, pre-exi- the pre-existence of Jesus Christ. The pre-existence of Jesus Christ. In verse 1, he starts off just, just like the book of Genesis does. In the beginning was the Word. There's no explanation. There's no, well, let me explain here. No, it's just, just in your face. And then he, he repeats that same terminology in verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. And then he Verse 14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. When it says there in the beginning, arche in the original language, it can mean source or origin or rule or authority, one in authority. Um, but if those connotations are, you know, that, that's all true of Jesus Christ, who is both the creator of the universe and its ruler. We believe him to be sovereign ruler. Um, but here, it refers to the beginning of the universe all the way back in Genesis 1.1. This is where John is starting, all the way back. He doesn't give any other introduction, nothing here about the birth of Christ or anything. He just goes right back. And because remember, last week we talked about this is kind of a, a heavenly, a supernatural look at Christ. The other Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're all looking at Jesus' earthly ministry kind of on an on a earthly plane. But, but John is looking at it from a heavenly standpoint. And so he starts even beyond the beginning, you could say. And he says there, in the beginning, all the way back, was the Word. I mean, why is he called the Word? Why is he referred to as the Word? 
Why not say in the beginning was Christ? Or in the beginning was Jesus the Lord? Or the Lord Jesus? Why does he say the word? Important question. Because the term word, logos, in the original language, there's a wonderful software program called Logos, Bible software. If you don't have it, you need to get it. It's just amazing. I mean, you can, that's how I find out all the stuff. I mean, it's just, it's all in one little program. You can have it on your phone or your iPad or your, your Mac or your PC. And it's not that much. You can start your library on Logos. But the word Logos in the Greek is loaded with meaning both for Jews and Greeks. They both kind of had an ideology of what this word meant. So let's talk about the Gentiles first. What does this word mean to a Gentile mind? The word, the term word. It's used once there in verse 14 to describe Jesus in the incarnation. It's used three times in verse 1. And there's no explanation of it. He doesn't say, well, this is why I'm calling this. This is why I'm using this word word to describe Jesus. He doesn't explain himself. And whenever the scriptures don't explain themselves, guess what? They don't need an explanation. Why? Because the people that this was written to didn't need an explanation. They knew exactly what John was getting across. Now, today in our age, we need a little bit of an explanation. But the Greeks would read this and they would completely understand what John was attempting to say because in the Greek world of philosophy, you could say, and religion, the word logos was believed to be a title given to a creative force, a creative force to the ordering, uh, you could say, an intelligent mind in the universe. And this is from kind of a pagan viewpoint. All right. This is an abstract uh, in, in the Greek mind, an impersonal, non-personal principle of reason and order and intelligence. They looked at it as a creative force, a source of knowledge or wisdom. A lot of times today scientists refer to when you talk about um, the, the, the beginning of everything and where it came from, you have even... A lot of evolutionists, they're struggling because of some of the evidence that's coming out uh, that, you know, the evolution is not true. <laughs> and uh, some of the physical evidence in our world is supporting uh, a, a designer, a creator. All right. And even some secular scientists, they wouldn't say they're creationists, but they would say they believe in intelligent design is the word they use. ID, they call it. Intelligent design. And so they, they basically... Um, raise this, this belief in a, a non-theistic kind of way, and they just refer to it as intelligent design. And these are people that look around and are honest with the facts that we see before us. You look around at the world, you, you don't just believe that this just happened by chance. Any more than you would that, you know, well... Uh, how, how did all those Bibles get over there and all that, that set up and everything? Oh, it just appeared one day. No. You know, we just kind of threw them in the corner in a pile and over millions of years they arranged themselves. No. You would say, I'm nuts. Okay? Well, the same thing when it applies to the creation. There has to be a creator. But like the Greeks, the modern day scientists can't say that. So they say, well, we believe in intelligent design. There's some kind of impersonal force. This is what really Einstein believed. Um, he first launched this when he said, well, of course there has to be some God. 
There has to be a God. There has to be a power behind this God. But he said we could never know it. He wouldn't dial down on it. But he acknowledged we just didn't happen. Um, And so they would say it's a cosmic force, cosmic intelligence, cosmic order. But they don't want to define it as the God of the Bible because if they define it as the God of the Bible, guess what? You got to deal with the God of the Bible. (laughs) And the God of the Bible is revealed not only as a creator, but also as what? As a judge, as a lawgiver, as even an executioner of those who reject his truth. They don't want to go there. So they just say, well, we'll just, we'll just call it intelligent design. Uh, and what John is saying here, this word logos is not an impersonal force. It's not an impersonal force. So he's addressing the Gentile mind. Uh, the logos is not kind, some kind of floating principle of reason. John is making it very clear to us, logos is a person. Is a person. And to the Greek mind, the Logos was the most powerful force in the universe. And John is saying, no, it's, it's a person. It's a person who became a man. It's a personal God who came into this world as a man. And his name is Jesus. That's what, God, that's what John wants us to know. Now, that was for the, the Gentile mind. To the Jew, the word Logos has even more meaning. A lot more meaning. To the Jews, the word of the Lord was a very familiar idea. They heard it. They read it in the Old Testament all the time. Um, if you read through the Old Testament, you read it many times. The word of the Lord came or, or the word of the Lord you know, uh, came forth or whatever it might say over and over again. And the, the word of the Lord in a Jewish mind was simply God revealing himself. That's what it was. Revealing who he was. Revealing his person. Revealing his nature. Revealing his will. His wisdom, his truth. When they said the word of the Lord, that's what they were talking about. The word of the Lord was an expression in the Jewish mind of the personal God. Now the Gentiles, they wouldn't make it personal. They just said it was a force. But to the Jewish mind, they had a God. One God. And they knew that when it said the word of the Lord, it was referring to his word. And he is a person. The true and living God of the Old Testament. By his word... God had spoken to them over and over and over again. In Hebrews 1, verse 1, it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. This is how it was done. He spoke through appointed people in a supernatural way. In the Old Testament, it was the prophets. In the New Testament, it was the the, uh, foundation of the apostles. But it says in verse 2, In these days, currently, in these last days, God has spoken to us. In other words, God doesn't speak to us new revelation on an ongoing way today. We have the canon of Scripture. We have the Bible. This is what God has given us. He's revealed his truth to us. The canon is what we call closed. We don't get to add to it. As a matter of fact, the Bible even says that. Do do not add revelation. Do not add to these words of these books. The the words of this book, he says. And so it's important that we take that seriously. But he says, but he has spoken to us by his what? In Hebrews, by his son. And this is what John is trying to get across. John is saying that the revelation of God, the disclosure of God, the manifestation of God, is now incarnate 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. The expression of God's nature, his will, his wisdom, his truth is embodied in our Savior. God is being revealed to us in Christ. You're hearing from God when you read passages from his word. When someone teaches you from God's word, they're not up there teaching their own words. God forbid. They're teaching the word of God. So you hear them as such. It's not that they are God, but they are expressing the thoughts and the intents of God's heart by declaring to you, by proclaiming to you, by preaching to you his word. And so the word is God, the personal God to the Jew in the flesh. And and, and Jesus then, what John is going to be explaining, is God in human flesh. He is the word of the living God. And so he uses that term because it explains both to Gentiles and to Jews his point. Um, Even in Psalm 138, the psalmist says this in verse 2, For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. The name of God and the word of God go hand in hand. God and his word are one. And the same because if, if God doesn't speak, guess what? We don't know anything about God. We don't know anything about him. We don't know anything about who he is. And so look down at verse in your text there, verse 14, because I just want to jump down there for a second, because it says here, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is what we're talking about. You hear this a lot at what time? Christmas time, right? We sing Christmas carols about Jesus putting on a human body, God in a body. He's, he's 100% God, 100% man. So God, the word, became flesh, it says. That word became, ginomai, in the original language, it's a very important word. And and really it indicates that though God is unchanging, we don't believe God changes. God is the same. Today, yesterday, forever. He's immutable. That's the changelessness of God. Because he's pure. He's holy. God is a pure being and God doesn't ever become something because if he was able to become something that would mean he wouldn't be something so God can't change that way it's hard for us to grasp because we're not that way but God is not becoming God is not changing God is not growing God is not getting more information I sometimes when we have prayer meetings we think like God doesn't understand because boy I mean most of it is just we're just feeding people information and we're doing it through prayer you know we should just tell everybody else what's on our heart and then pray to God it would make our prayer times a lot better I think rather than going through every little jot and tittle of the details thinking that God doesn't understand our needs the Bible says he knows what we need even before we even say you know we should be focusing more on the character of God and and, and that, rather than just informing everybody of what's going on in our lives. That's true prayer. But God doesn't need this. He doesn't need more information. Uh, God is not at any point, think about this, incomplete. There's nothing you can add to God. God is pure. He's an unchangeable being. And yet, though he is being He is being as God and not becoming as God. He became, the Bible says, a man. And that was a big, big change. 
This had never happened before, obviously. The incarnation was the event when God took on the fullness of humanity while remaining fully God. Some people think of Jesus, well, yeah, he's 50% God, 50% man. No. He's 100% God, 100% man. Two natures not mingled, but fused together in indivisible oneness in one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you understand that, you've got a lot bigger brain than I do because I can't understand it at all. But that's what the Word of God says. And sometimes we can't comprehend. God says, my ways are higher than yours. Now, notice it doesn't say that he was flesh. That was true. He had a fleshly body. He had a human body. But it says that he what? He became flesh. He became flesh. And the word became flesh. Uh, The Greek word indicates a change of condition. A change of condition. And it demands with that change of condition that he, if you're going to change in condition, that means you have to exist before the change. So a lot of people think, well, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That's when it started. No, that's not when it started for Jesus Christ. Because he is eternal in every way. He became flesh means he was already in existence, yet in another form. But he became physical flesh, it says, and he, look at what it says in verse 14, he dwelt among us. That word dwelt is the word that we use for tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. Jesus was just like the tabernacle. What was the tabernacle? It was a visible demonstration to the people of Israel of what? Of the presence of God. That's what the tabernacle was. When they saw the tabernacle, they knew that's where God dwelt. And so Jesus Christ is a visible demonstration of the presence of God. God's tabernacle on earth, when Christ was on earth, was his body. That's where Christ That's where God tabernacled. He dwelt among us. When Jesus was walking around here on earth, it was as if God was walking around here on earth. It was God walking around here on earth because Jesus is God. Even over in Colossians chapter 1, verse 17, the apostle Paul writes this about Jesus Christ. He says, and he is before all things. Think about that. He is before all things. Now listen what it says. And in him all things hold together. A lot of people say, well, how do you think the world's going to end? Jesus is going to say, you know what? Okay, I'm a little tired here. I'm not going to hold it together anymore. Boom, I'm going to let go. (laughs) And when he lets go, guess what's going to happen? Boom. Everything we know around us will be burned up. It will be gone. And the Bible says God will create a new heavens and a new earth in which we will dwell for all of eternity. But everything we see around here, as grand as it is, as beautiful as it is, it's going to be gone. That's why when you talk to tree huggers and different people of that sort that want to preserve the world. We should take care of the world. We shouldn't go out and just litter for the sake of littering and things like that. But you're not going to be able to preserve this earth for eternity because God says, I'm going to destroy it. So you're up against pretty stiff competition. So we are, we are called to be good stewards. But what has our politicians today have created a whole science that doesn't really exist and they've done it for one reason money 
They have carbon taxes and all this stuff, thinking that somehow just a small little group of people in the United States is going to control the Earth's environment, control the Earth's climate. Okay, it went from global warming, oh, it's going to warm up, and then all of a sudden they realize, well, that's not true. Well, let's just call it climate change. Well, who doesn't believe that climate changes? I mean, you walk out every day, it's different, right? Especially here in the Bay Area with all the little microclimates we have. It could be 80 degrees here. You go to San Francisco and you're freezing, it's 40. So, you know, yeah, climate changes, big deal. See, they want you to believe that you are changing climate. And because you're the bad person changing climate, that's why we have to make all these changes. We have to stop all the stuff. Because, oh my gosh, we're going to kill the whales and the whales die. We're all going to die and it's horrible. And they create this frenzy and people just buy into it without thinking logically. See, if that was honest, if that was true, if what you actually did in your life would cause the end of the world, some people believe in five years, ten years, it's all going to be over if we don't do all this. Um, If you really believe that, would you fly in a jet? Let alone a private jet? Would you have a, a house that's you know, 25,000 square feet? And then, well, I can pay the carbon tax. I mean, how's that going to help everybody else? If what you're doing is going to kill everybody in five years, why don't you stop doing what you're... See, they don't even believe their own lies. But they want to impose regulations and everything on everyone else that dampens our, dampens our economy. It, it, it affects everybody. It doesn't affect them because they live above it. They don't care. See, and, and this is so important, but the Bible says that he is before all things. In him, all things hold together. The pre-existence of Christ is taught all the way through this gospel, we're going to find out. Not just here, but all the way through. Even in John chapter 8, verse 58 and 59, it says there that Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, what does Christ say? I am. <laughs> In other words, they were quoting all this stuff about Abraham and who do you think you are, Jesus? He says, hey, listen, before Abraham was, I am. In other words, I'm eternal. That's what he was saying. And you say, well, did they understand what he meant? Of course they understood what he meant. If you just follow the text down in verse 59, what did they do? They, it says they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Why did they want to throw stones at him? Because he was blaspheming God in their minds. He was calling himself eternal God. In the Jewish mind, you can't do that. There's got to be repercussions. There's got to be some form of judgment that falls upon you. See, there's, there's a clear message in John as to who Jesus really is. And, and he always existed. He never had a beginning. That's so important to understand this this pre-existence of Christ because it it affects so many other doctrinal issues. So we see here, first of all, his pre-existence. Secondly, let's look at his position. His position, it's in the same verse there. In the beginning was the Word. And then it says, and the Word was what? With God. The Word was with God. Jesus is the second person, we say, of the Trinity. Okay, it doesn't mean that he's God's number one and he's number two, but there's three in the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They're all co-equally God, right? And yet they're distinct in persons, in, in, in nature, in, 
in, you know, you could, you could say they're, they're, they're different people. But there's one God. There's not three gods. He's the, considered the second person of the Trinity. Uh, literally, this word, you could say the word was continually toward God. That's kind of a literal translation of the original language. The word was continually toward God. Think of it this way. The Father and the Son were continually face to face. That's pretty intimate when you're face to face with someone. That preposition with, it bears the idea of nearness along with a a continual sense of movement toward God. Not away from God, but toward God. And the word with is, is kind of leading us here in a different direction. It's, it's prose in the, in the original language, and it, it means toward or facing. And the idea is inequality, is equality. And so what John is saying here is the word was facing on the same level, total equality with God. That's who Jesus is. So his position is pretty clear. You know from John 5 that we just read a few moments ago that when they accused him of blasphemy on the Sabbath day, it says, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal, right, with God. And they said, well, you can't do that. He said, yeah, I can because I am. So when we read in verse 1, the word was with, it means facing God in equality. John's position is clear. And that is to say there has always existed the deepest equality and intimacy in the Holy Trinity. Always. It's not something that developed over time. Oh, they got to know each other better. And then, hey, let's call ourselves the Trinity. Yeah, great. No, it doesn't work that way. They're, They're eternal beings. Leon Morris says it this way. He says the whole existence of the word was oriented towards the Father. Probably we should understand from the preposition the two ideas of accompaniment and relationship. Not only did the word exist in the beginning, but he existed in the closest possible connection with the Father. That's the whole point that John is making. This shows us that the word is not some impersonal idea or or some philosophy that somebody thought up. It's a person. The word is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And this person is distinguishable from God. But he is eternal God. Again, in our minds we think of that and it's hard to understand. I I understand that. But he he lives in perfect joyous intimacy with his father. He is preexistent. He is the second person in the Trinity. And then lastly here today we're just going to look at his person Jesus is God. It says there in the verse, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And then what does it say? And the Word was God. The Word was God. Morris says about that, he says, Nothing higher could be said. All that may be said about God may fitly be said about the Word. This statement should not be watered down. And he goes on and he says, John is not merely saying that there is something divine about Jesus. A lot of people believe that. But he is affirming that he is God and doing so emphatically, as we see from the word order in the Greek. See, if you encounter 
people like the Jehovah Witnesses, you know that they claim here that the Greek text, they use a translation of the, the scriptures known as the New World Translation. And they changed the original text. And they changed this verse. And it says the word was small g, a God. And they say, well, we study Greek and we know what we're talking about. Because there's no Greek definite article before God. Um, I don't know if you've seen that, but you can actually look in their translations and see that. But you have to understand this. There is no Greek word for an indefinite article, like A or an. It doesn't exist. Whenever you see it, it's just an interpretation. The interpreters put it in there. When you study the original language, there's no A or an in Greek. And the Jehovah Witnesses, they try to trick people, and they hate this passage in John, and so they had to change it. And so the Jehovah Witness tries to say, well... They say this, the definite article, the, is not in front of God. I mean, they say it has to be in front of a God, is what they claim it to be. The word was a God. But the way you can argue that is say, hey, the definite article is not in front of God, but it's in front of what? What does it say? The. In front of the word. The word. It's not in front of God. It's not saying the word was the God. That would be blasphemy. You couldn't say that. As a matter of fact, even in the original Greek text, when you read it in the order in which it, if you translate it directly, it says God was the word. And so that's, that's very literal translation. And when you leave that definite article out, it points to the essence and substance behind something. And if you put it in, it, it specifies its contrast to others. Now, I, I know that's difficult, maybe, but think about it this way. The God among gods. Um, well, there is no other gods, right? Uh, that's just a false pagan idea of man. And when you say he's God, it means in every sense, in every way, in essence, in being. Uh, it's very important that you, you understand that. Um, there's a little bit of difference than saying the word was God. And the word, or God was the word. There's a little bit of difference there. Both are powerful. But literally, this says God was the word. But God was the word. That's quite a statement when you think about it. In the beginning was the word. The word was facing equality. He was God. But God was the word. It's more powerful than any other way you could express it. He's saying that God, the God who made us, who created the universe was the word who became flesh, who became flesh. God became man to tell us not only what he was like, that's what people think, oh, Jesus became man so we could you know, know what God's like. Well, that's true, but he also came to substitute his infinite life for the sum total of all of us who needed to die for our sins. This is why he came, to seek and to save that which was lost. God was 
in Christ, reconciling, the Bible says, the world to himself. That's the message of the gospel. Sometimes you can ask people this question and see how they respond. Do you think that if a person you know accepts Jesus and they become a Christian, but they don't believe Jesus is God, can they go to heaven? That's a good question to ask somebody. You accept Jesus, you become a Christian, but you don't believe that Jesus is God. Can you really be a Christian? It's impossible. It's impossible. That's what John is, that's his whole argument. That's the whole gospel. And the whole gospel tells us either he is God or he's not God. You can't have it both ways. You may believe wonderful things about Jesus, but if you do not believe who he says he is, guess what? There's no salvation in that. Only God can forgive your sins. Only God can give you eternal life. And the Bible says the word was God, or God was the word, if you want to say it literally. Well, how do you answer these Jehovah Witnesses that come against you? Well, first of all, this is the only way there is to say this in Greek. The word was God. There's there's no other way. Uh, If John had put a definite article before God, the word was a God, it would have equated the word totally with God. And that would really negate the distinction between the word and God. In other words, it would make them the same thing. And that's not true because there's a trinity. (laughs) Jesus is different from the Father. And yet he's still God. Secondly, you could just say, you know what? I don't think a lot of us understand the technicalities of Greek. But down through history, most every translation literally points out that you're wrong. (laughs) That's what you could answer them. Or thirdly, you could just say there are many scriptures that clearly proclaim Jesus as God. Even within John's gospel. You don't need to go to John 1 to do that. In John 5.18, as we looked, he, you know, when he was, they sought to kill him because he was making himself equal with God, Jesus' response wasn't like, oh, sorry, I, I think you're a little confused. I didn't really mean to say that I'm God. That's not what Jesus responded with, did he? No, rather he says that the Father has given all judgment to the Son so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. That's a pretty bold response to somebody who's claiming that you're blaspheming God. Or you can look at the climax of John's gospel in, in John 20, 28, when Thomas basically sees the risen Jesus. And what does he say? He says, my Lord and what? My God. He was not making just an explanation. He wasn't saying, my Lord, my God. That's what they say. That's their argument for that verse. Now, the, the Mormons treat it a little differently. They say, oh, well, Thomas was, was looking at the Lord, and he said, my Lord. And then he looked up to heaven and said, my God. It's not there. But that's what they want you to believe. Surely, Jesus would have rebuked him if, if he meant anything other than to say he was God. But he didn't. And so, even in Revelation 1, 17 to 18, Years later on the island of Patmos, the apostle John had a vision of the risen Lord. John fell before him, it says, as a dead man. And it says there, Jesus said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. 
and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. This is what the Lord Jesus told John in a vision. Well, guess where that comes from? Isaiah 44, 6, which says this, Thus the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. See, clearly in light of Isaiah, Jesus was claiming to be the Lord of hosts, the only true living God. C.K. Barrett in his commentary says, John intends that the whole of his gospel be, shall be read in the light of this verse. The deeds and words of Jesus are the deeds and words of God. If this is not true, then this book is blasphemous. And so verse 1 affirms that Jesus is eternal. It affirms that he is the second person of the Trinity. It affirms that he is God. Next week, we're going to look into uh, his purpose and his power. But, you know, I just want to close with a phrase from a song we sing um, quite a bit. Because if you're going to get anything out of the Gospel of John, this is what has to be on your heart. And, And the little chorus is this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And then listen, and the things of earth will what? Grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Father, we pray this morning that you would continue to allow these truths to resonate in our hearts even as we leave here today. As we have our fellowship across the way with a meal, Lord, I pray you bless this food to our bodies, bless our time of fellowship. But Lord, you know today who is gathered here to worship you. Um, we, we, only you can really understand who has faith in you and who doesn't. You know who's here today and maybe they've made a claim of knowing Christ, but they have not put their full trust into the hands of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, I would pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit, that even now that you would draw their hearts to Christ. Lord, that you would make them very aware of their sin before a holy God. That you would make them aware that there is only one way to deal with that sin. You can't clean yourself up. You can't wash it away. It's not going to happen. You have to put your faith and trust in the gift that God gave us in his eternal son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to this earth, lives 30-some years, perfect life in every way, so that he could become the spotless, perfect lamb of God. And as he went to the cross and gave up his life on our behalf, for us, he died. It says his blood, the life, as it flowed out of his body, it covers our sins if we're willing to come to him by faith and trust in him for the work that he's done on Calvary. Would you cause people right now even to be stricken in their heart, to be convicted of their sin, but help them to realize there's an answer, that your son came and died and lived and was not only died, but he rose on the third day, victorious over sin and death. So we can have hope, we can have purpose, we can have meaning in our lives when we come to Christ, who is by his very title, the the creator God. He's the one who's given us life. And pray, Lord, that you would just do that 
miraculous work of salvation, Lord, that you would cause people to cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Have them put their faith and trust in you. And for believers, Lord, here today, I pray that we would be reminded of your truth, and Lord, that we would be ever willing to go out into this lost and dying world and share these truths with others who've yet to hear, that we could see the transforming power of Christ, the Holy Spirit, your word, affect change in the lives of our friends, our families, in our world, Lord. You know that's the only hope we have. We pray this in Jesus' precious name.